You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. And hi, I'm Arnold. And that is Arnold T. Blumberg of ATB Publishing and various other things. And, well, okay, a slight confession. There were actually going to be three of us on this podcast, and we were going to have a rolling chat about a number of different things. But uh, that hasn't quite worked out. So there are two of us now, and the other two of us will convene again in a couple of weeks. But actually, Arnold... I think there's enough for us to talk about with you to uh, pretty much fill the episode anyway. I will be happy to chat about uh, whatever comes up, and I'm certainly grateful for the opportunity to spend some time with you. Well, that's absolutely fine. The reason being, and uh, this will become apparent in a couple of weeks, there are... Coming out almost within a few weeks of each other, two pretty major books about Doctor Who. And uh, obviously one of them is yours. We will get there in a moment, but uh, uh, I I think you'll probably agree with me on the subjects. They're pretty major in terms of Doctor Who, yeah? I'm not sure. I guess so. Um, If you have anything specific in mind, I'm sure we can cover it. Well, we'll get to it. I want to save the book till later on. Okay. Because I always find if you talk about the thing you're trying to sell at the end of the podcast, people are more likely to have it in their heads when they turn the podcast off. No problem. That sounds good to me. Let them let them walk off with that being the last thing in their heads. And exactly. Be, that's right. Right. Prior to that, then, I want to talk to you about something else. Zombies. Oh, awesome. Because if there's one thing and... Uh, I, I I must confess, I'm not a zombie fan myself, mm-hmm. although mm-hmm. obviously I've seen plenty of zombie movies and, you know, this, that and the other. It's kind of hard to avoid these days, yeah. Well, it certainly is nowadays, no question. Sure. But your other big thing is zombies, is that right? Yeah, it kind of took its own shape after a while. I had, um, short version is that back in the early 2000s, um, while I was doing book design for other publishers and also working on other things. I had come out of the comic book industry and had worked for many years on collectible price guides and all sorts of things, but I co-authored a book with a good friend of mine that at the time was one of the very first books that was ever published that tried to sort of exhaustively cover the history of zombies in cinema. <laughs> and and we did it as, you know, part of tribute to like all the books we grew up reading as kids, like all those great like coffee table books about the old universal monsters or the hammer horror movies stuff like that and uh but then it kind of spiraled around the time we did that other books started coming out uh the walking dead comic had been published for the last few years at that point but had started becoming even more popular and i was teaching uh college courses where i was occasionally touching on pop culture subjects but then 
I pitched University of Baltimore, my hometown university, on me doing a, a pop culture semester, a media literacy course, where we would use the zombie genre as the framework. Yeah. And they loved the idea at the time, and the weirdest thing was we launched it the same fall in 2010 when the Walking Dead television show debuted on AMC. Oh, perfect timing. So, yeah. So it's like it all kind of exploded after that, and... Uh, like a week after my class started, I was walking to and from class, and University of Baltimore is actually in downtown Baltimore. It doesn't have like a campus per se, so I'm like walking down the streets of Baltimore with traffic everywhere, and my cell phone keeps going off because there's newspapers from like Malaysia and Germany and the UK and China, and everybody wants to ask, who's this weird guy who's doing the zombie class, you know? <laughs> And it just went nuts. So ever since then, I've I've you know moved on to doing the podcast Doctor of the Dead with Scott Woodard and. Uh, well, this is what I was going to ask you about. Yeah. Being the sort of podcast, you know, yeah. you're a guest on my podcast, so obviously I want to know about your podcast. Sure. Well, it it all grew out of other projects that Scott and I've done, and Scott also has an extensive, sort of like. Um, um, Doctor Who related background with many things he's done. Some Doctor Who fans might remember his name because he wrote several of the big Finnish audio dramas, including The Juggernauts with uh, Colin and Terry Malloy's Davros. And he wrote the fourth chapter of I Davros that was basically the prequel to Genesis of the Daleks. Mm -hmm. So he's done a lot of things related to that. And we got to know each other at conventions. And we started a project together that was initially going to be a podcast about all kind of pop culture called the G2V Podcast. And then he came up. It was entirely his idea. He came up with this brainstorm of all the zombie stuff I do. We should do a zombie and horror-themed podcast called Doctor of the Dead. And, I mean, I have a doctorate. It's not in zombies, no matter what <laughs> some people insist on saying. It's not, but it's a legitimate degree. But anyway... But so I said, that's really cute. That's great. And um, and we started doing that. And with every episode, we were talking about episodes of Walking Dead and Z Nation on Sci-Fi Channel and iZombie and, and old movies and everything that we can throw in there. And we've interviewed people and, you know, done special uh, looks back at like George Romero's films. And uh, we, we recently have been through a period of a few months now. Where we're not doing much of it anymore because we've both become so mired in really big publishing projects for yeah, me yeah. it's the one we're going to talk about yeah so um so it's been a bit of a hiatus but um hopefully we'll we'll keep it going we're we're just shy of about 100 episodes at this point wow that's pretty good yeah so on the subject of zombies then because i'm well like i say i'm anything but an innocent in terms of zombie movies <laughs> but my tastes being sort of an outsider are probably completely different from yours but i mean do you prefer recent zombie movies or like the really old zombie movies like you know rue morgue and things like that or well what's your I, what's your uh, taste it, it it's a good question when it comes to zombies um it, it varies. I mean, they're in the same way when people ask me, like, what's your favorite? It, it all kind of depends on, like a lot of movies and television, it all kind of depends on what your mood is at the time. I appreciate a lot of them for different reasons. I can't really say that there's one specific era I like more than another because I think there are a lot of modern films that tell great stories or have great characters and are just as entertaining. But I do think that we are in an era now where a lot of people, and not to get horribly ageist, but it is kind of true, a lot of younger people 
whether by virtue of not wanting to or just not knowing about it, they're not as exposed to older stuff as often as they used to be. Like I grew up, like we were just talking about, I grew up watching all those old Universal and all those old movies yeah, yeah. because they would run on late night television here in the States all the time. And now with so many choices available to you, it's almost like there are fewer choices because people will not just happen upon something. They're going to go stream something on Netflix or they're going to, you know. Yeah. So I try to steer people more toward the older things. So I will I will sometimes talk about how I do appreciate a lot of the older movies more because it's well worth reminding people that they exist and that there's a lot of benefit to revisiting them. So, for instance, a couple I would always recommend is the very first zombie movie ever made, which is White Zombie from 1932, uh, yeah, yeah. and it's Bela Lugosi. And, uh, and another one, an incredibly stylish film called I Walked with a Zombie from 1943. It's yeah. a Val Luton movie. Yeah. But, but you know, there, there are modern movies that are great, too, and, and there's a lot of stuff that's crap from in here also. <laughs> so it's, you know, it all depends on what your mood is and what you're interested in watching. And uh, I try to, to foster the idea that, like, it's all good and, you know, every, everybody has favorites and there's no reason to, you know, uh, yeah, put someone yeah. down for that. Yeah. Well, do you find... Because actually, listening as you say that, it's just struck me, a podcast is a great way of getting mm -hmm. people who like the modern version of something to perhaps want to try out the old version of something. Sure, and, and one of the goals of the podcast has always been that it was sort of, for me anyway, a natural extension of what I do in teaching. And, you know, like, there's all the silly media coverage about whether I'm teaching a course in zombies or, like, a couple of years ago I launched a course that was one based on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And mm -hmm. we looked at the movies all semester. But the, the whole point that, like, if you, you can't necessarily get into everyone's head. There are people who always think this sounds silly. The whole point is it's not about the zombies. It's not about the Marvel characters. The well. You, <laughs> well, yeah. But this I mean, is going to be my next question, funnily enough. Well, okay. You know, it's all right. You carry on. You're well, answering just, it for me. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that the, the whole point is you pick things that uh, a class of students might find appealing or entertaining or interesting or more likely for them to be able to enjoy delving into. And then you have them in a framework where you can get them to discuss race, gender, economic yeah. class, yeah. social issues, you know, what do these movies and TV shows say? How do they reflect us? And it's so much easier to get them to meaningful conversation if you start with something that's fun or that's interesting. And this is not to say that, like, classic literature and other things can't be useful, but this is what I do. I like I like using pop culture. Yeah. So um, so we use all of that. And, uh, and, you know, by the end of the day, you get to some pretty interesting conversations about all of it. And... Uh, and I'm sorry, I kind of wandered a little bit there, but no, that's, no, that's, no, no, no. That's, that's always been the fun. goal. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, I completely agree. I, it's a much. If you've got, I've always said this about message movies. It's easier to get a message across if it's disguised, and the person you're trying to preach to doesn't realize that you're preaching to them. If you sure. know what I mean, and kind of absolutely that's a variation on the same theme. And to go back to what you were saying, the, your question earlier was that that's what the podcast grew out of for me, too. And you're right. The idea is, well, maybe somebody listens to Doctor of the Dead because they liked The Walking Dead at the time. Or, and it's fascinating how many people will tell you, 
I'm not a zombie fan. Yeah. I'm a Walking Dead fan. And, and, and it's like, well, you are a zombie fan then, but you've just chosen the version of it that you like, and yeah. that's it. But yeah, some of them have told me afterwards, some listeners said, you know, well, I never would have looked at White Zombie or I never would have watched this old movie, but this was kind of interesting. And if you get a few people that maybe expand their horizons a little bit, that's a nice bonus. Yeah, because the, the thing about me is one of the thing, one of the sort of genres or subgenres that I'm that I've always had an affinity with is the post-apocalypse. Sure. And the post-apocalypse and the zombie movie obviously go absolutely hand in hand because what mm-hmm. is a zombie movie if it's not an apocalypse, right? Absolutely, and very often anyway. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and of course, it your your choice of genre though goes far beyond that because I did I did one semester actually a few years ago where they asked me to do something a little bit different, and I did a course where we did post-apocalyptic film rather than just zombie films. So right. I only used a couple zombie movies, and the rest were things like. You know, whether it was like on the precipice of like Andromeda strain or something where it's, you know, yeah. a disease might happen um, to things like the road or, or stuff like that. And we did a look at how we're so fascinated with the end of the world and, and all those permutations. Right, right. OK, I'm going to throw a handful of names of zombie films at you now. And you've got okay. to say thumbs up or thumbs down or wavering. Oh, OK. All right. <laughs> OK, 28 Days Later. I like it a lot. Thumbs up. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the movie that sparks more debate online for me than anything else. And at least once a month, if not more often, I have to explain to people why, yes, it is a zombie movie. Yeah, yeah. So... And I have a prepared statement to that effect, but we won't go into that now. But yes, I like it a lot. It's great. I also like the sequels pretty good, too. 28 Weeks Later is pretty good. I really like that film, too. I think it's yeah. actually a film that takes the story on and mm-hmm. takes it into new places, but does so in perfect harmony with the first one. I think it's great. Yeah. I think they're both visually very appealing. And and that I know that might sound strange to somebody who says, yeah, but it's the end of the world. And yeah, but there's yeah, yeah, something yeah. <laughs> visually really cool about them. Oh, there's something visually really beautiful in a kind of bittersweet way about the end of the world. Yeah. And I mean, 28 Days Later, there's that scene that's supposed to be that. Like they're watching the horses in the meadow and it's like they don't even yeah. care what happened. They're fine. And it's like that just says so much. So, yeah, it's it's very well well-made movie. Uh, yeah, I'm a thumbs up on that one too. Okay, going slightly lefter afield, what about The Omega Man? Well, that's one of my all-time favorite childhood movies. Right. So it's gonna be, it's gonna Do you be count it as me. a zombie film? Technically, yes, but yeah. I, I, I'm quite happy to say it's one of the ones that sort of exists on the periphery. I favor a very inclusive you know, set of criteria. Yeah. We put it in the book Zombie Mania that started this whole thing for me. And uh, actually, one of the most recent episodes of Doctor of the Dead, we did an episode long sort of homage to to that movie and talked about it. Because, but it's it's definitely an acquired taste. It's a kitschy '70s film. And, yeah, yeah. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that people might not find it really you know weird or or too cheesy, but I like it. Oh, I love it too. But but okay, while we're there, what about the other two versions of that book? The Last Man on Earth and... Well, The Last Man on Earth is also it's good. It's very atmospheric. I think it suffers quite a bit because of the production values. Yes, yes. But it's got Vincent Price. It's got one of the most, I think, truly chilling scenes in any movie ever, which I guess I don't want to spoil, but it involves a knock at the door. Yeah. And uh you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but uh, and then I am Legend. I think is a deeply flawed movie, um, but it was a boon for me in classes because oh, they yeah. altered the ending, and the the difference in the two endings is so stark and so emblematic of where American culture was at that time, and really even still now, that it's a great lesson in how movies are you know, fixed to a particular mindset, you know, how right, studios yeah. think moviegoers want. But I don't think it's a very good movie. I, th- I think it has some good points, but it misses the mark quite a bit. Yeah, that's fair enough. Okay, here's the next one. Okay. <clears throat> okay. The remake of Day of the Dead. <laughs> I'm going to go a thumbs down on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I think I, I... <laughs> I'm sure that somebody likes it, and I would never say you can't like something. You know, that's fine, but I'm going to, yeah, thumbs down. <clears throat> yeah, that is one of those films where you just... I've seen it once years ago and I came out of the back end of it thinking what on earth was anybody doing in this? Yeah. It's one of those things you wonder sometimes. And there's so many of them, particularly in the zombie genre where you think surely in a crew and and a cast of what a couple hundred people working on something, at least could no one turn around and say, maybe this is not a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) What we're doing. And unless I'm remembering completely wrongly, Two or three of the actors in that were quite well known at the time. Yeah, Ving Rhames had done, what was that? It was after he did Dawn of the Dead, the remake of Dawn of the Dead, I believe. And, um, was it Mina Suvari, I think, is in it also? I mean, yes, so it wasn't. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't like a total. Like, and there's a lot of stuff out there where it just like clearly you know it's a bunch of friends that grabbed a, yeah, a digicam yeah. for the weekend and shot a movie, fine. But this is not that. And it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, last one, and this one maybe also is contentious, but World War Z. World War Z, I I deeply dislike. Oh, really? I, I will I will not go so far as to say hate. Yeah. Um, but I do think that I genuinely felt, and and I'm not really trying to be funny about it. I genuinely felt it was one of the stupidest things I had seen in years, and I don't just mean a zombie movie i don't just mean a blockbuster i mean it, it felt like a story that actually was insulting the intelligence yeah, while enough. you were watching it a lot a lot of different elements to that and obviously we could talk a lot longer about it but i i thought it was and yet you know and it, it comes down to what do i know right because the thing made tons of money they're still working on the sequel yeah uh, last i heard david fincher is you know in contention and direct this thing so yeah i heard his name against that yeah. as well i find that hard to believe and there was that sort of like massive 11th hour fix where they were supposed to do the big finale in Russia and they ran out of money. So they did the thing in Cardiff instead. And, yeah. you know, everybody, you know, watch Peter Capaldi do nothing for a few minutes in that movie. It's a shame. Um, so, yeah. I, and, and yet it now stands in the record books that for now, anyway, it is the most successful zombie movie ever made. But that's yeah. just by virtue of the numbers. Yes. Yes. Um, I have to say, um, I've got to confess, I enjoyed it. Well, that's fine. I enjoyed it in a sort of brain-turned-off kind of way. There's also some stuff in there visually, again, that's interesting. Like the idea they came up with of we're going to make them like ants and the swarming sequence at the wall in Jerusalem, for instance. There's stuff in that that's visually arresting. Um, But it is pretty senseless. (laughs) Yeah, and and, and ultimately I just, you know, I I can't give it a pass because of that but you know obviously well that's one of the the... things about 
the zombie genre, and that's obviously a really bad example of it, but one of the things about the zombie genre is that tends to be that the people coming up with the stories and the concepts and basically the reasons actually tend they tend to be quite thoughtful and these movies often tend to be quite philosophical really they disguise it but it's there yeah and to go back you were saying a little bit about that before to go back to that idea i would add to what you're saying that sometimes i would say that the most successful examples of that message kind of storytelling yeah. is often when it's not quite as calculated. Yeah. In other words, too often, I think, particularly in the zombie genre, because I think Romero, more than anyone else, sort of set the bar that everyone feels, well, we're doing zombies, we must have a meaning here. And yeah. the problem is... Why don't you focus on telling a good story and having good characters? The meaning will come, but don't start this because you want to deliver a message and you forget everything about telling a story. And I think that's where it goes awry sometimes. Well, yeah, people will tend to, whatever's going on around them, will tend to filter into their writing. Yes, exactly. Uh, regardless of whether they want it to or not. So I'm, Absolutely. So I'm guessing the first Night of the Living Dead... And this must be years and years and years since I've seen it. But mm -hmm. as I recall, that must have um, a huge influence of the Vietnam War, I would assume. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And we're, we're, we're just awash in discussion of that now. I mean, obviously, Romero just recently died. So there's yeah, more yeah. focus than ever looking back at that. And that movie is about to have its 50th anniversary next year. So there's a lot of talk. And, God, but, it is. Blimey. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and so there's so much dissection of that, even more than usual. And you're right. It's it's very much a product of its time. And although I think even people that are very dedicated fans have now chosen to, I think, sort of embrace the, the, um, the sort of orthodoxy around it, that this was all intentional, there is still so much about that movie that I think just happened because it happened. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And even Romero and his writing partner, John Russo, and many others later, claimed a bit more credit maybe than was warranted. They certainly deserve credit for what they made, but I doubt that they shot that movie then in 1968 with a list on a pad saying these are the six things about society yeah. we're going to tick down. It just happened, yeah. and, and well, the you've result got, is something, you know. You've only got to look at the um, issues surrounding the copyright on that film to yes. know that they weren't on they weren't on top of everything they were doing. They were just doing <laughs> They missed it. a few things. That's yeah, exactly. Right. That's right. Shall we? Oh, I'll tell you what. Before we move on, I'm going to recommend you a zombie movie. Now, okay. you made a comment a few minutes ago about, you know, a bunch of friends going out at the weekend with a video camera. So, yes. but okay, I, I, the people who made this film actually came on this podcast a few weeks ago to talk about oh, it because I've okay. turned it into a bit of a sort of, you know, a bit of a sort of project of mine. Um, you may or may not have heard of it, The Darkest Day. That name does sound familiar, but no, I can't really say that I, I can recall exactly. So I think it's no. just about to or has just okay. had a limited release in North America. It's, okay. it's a student film that some students were making. And, uh, well, if I tell you that the director of it has since gone on to do um, special effects work for Disney on some major, major movies and um, has worked for Ridley Scott and things like The Martian and Alien, the oh, latest Alien nice. film, 
And that is because of the work he did on this student film he made, which got a limited cinema release and a proper DVD release in this country. And it's basically just a student movie. It is essentially a remake of uh, 28 Days Later in many respects. But I'm going to recommend to you that I think it's well worth seeking out because I actually think it stands up pretty well as a movie in its own right well i will definitely check that out then that sounds intriguing already so and that's at least the third or fourth shout out i've given to that film on this podcast so let's move on well i'll be happy to check it out when i do i'll try to make sure that i let people know that i've I've, uh given it a look and and what i thought so brilliant thanks yeah sure right let's talk about publishing because the book that we're going to talk about you're not just one of the authors and probably the primary author on it and probably the prime mover behind it, but also you're the publisher of it. How did ATB Publishing come about? Well, um, I, th- I I think I might have to correct you on a few things about the book we're going to talk about. Okay, hopefully. fair enough. It, yeah. It's possible, but, I, but absolutely, um, ATB Publishing is my independent press and and uh, actually, you and I have talked about it beforehand, of well, course. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember back when it was all still coming together, and you very kindly included me in a piece where you were looking at the state of independent and small publishing going on. At the time, there were you know a lot of players, and yeah. I think most of the people involved that are still around one way or another. Everybody is, I think. Yeah, I think you're um, right. They are, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and at the time... It was still just getting started, but what happened was, like I was saying a bit earlier, I spent a lot of time professionally in publishing, working as, wearing many hats with the the company that I was at in the comic book industry. I was writing, editing, doing some book design and layout, which I still do today for everything that we publish that that I'm doing, and uh, just all sorts of things, production management and all that. And I love the whole process. I always have. It's not just about writing in books. I just love the whole process of making books. And even as the technology has changed... I'm just going to bump in just for a second to say that the book that we are eventually going to talk about absolutely sings with that. You can totally tell from looking at it. Oh, well, that's wonderful to hear. I really appreciate that. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted. No, no, but that's... (laughs) Interrupt with that kind of thing is fine. That's great. <laughs> no, thank you very much. And and um, so I, I knew I knew sort of in my heart at one point I always, I always knew that I would I would like to do something professionally where it, maybe not necessarily entirely be like you know in business myself without any other job or gig, but I knew that I always wanted to be doing something related to publishing. And it led me to working with other publishers and doing book design for other books. But I always knew that I wanted to do something entirely on my own. Yeah. And as I was starting to say, even as the world has changed and so much of the print world, you know, seemed to be facing a period of time where it was, you know, falling and, oh, we're not going to be interested in print books anymore. It didn't change my interest in continuing to do it. And now, of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, continuing debate because in the world that we're in, with the kind of books that we're talking about too, it's sort of a niche market where people are always going to be interested in holding that artifact. In yes, their hands. So yeah. I don't think that really changes, but so I think so actually when this... the way the world has changed has yeah. kind of in a way made it more viable to do 
smaller print run books. Do you know what I, I mean? I think I do think that that is what happened. And if we had been talking about this years ago, I think we would have been sounding the death knell. And now with so many op-ed pieces, and you know, now they'd call them hot takes. And, you know, these articles did. But now I don't. I think you're right. I think that really what's wound up being is it's turned it into. In some sense, sort of a, a boutique kind of thing, but yeah, I also yeah. think that people are just, if you're interested in books and reading, that doesn't go away, and you still like the physical thing. And so this book we're going to talk about was basically the project that made me realize this is it. I can take ATB Publishing, which up until then I had incorporated purely as it wasn't a publishing house in and of itself, but was my consulting uh, shell for doing all the other uh, publishing work that I was doing. Yeah, and I thought, well, now I can turn that into actually what it sounds like, make that the publishing company. But as it turned out, the project spiraled into something even bigger and clearly yeah. needed more time. And so we wound up going with something else first, but that also led to establishing another series of books that we're still doing. Well, yeah, let's talk about that other something, because that has sure. to be, originally, if I'm not incorrect, originally that was planned as two books, and now it's going to be, who knows, half a dozen or more, maybe. Yeah, so when when, uh, when we were still throwing around the ideas for this um, elusive title that we will get to, <laughs> uh, people, I was talking... People listening to this know exactly yeah, what we're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I know, this, this, this fake suspense, <laughs> but all right. Um but I was talking with Robert Smith, and um, as probably many Doctor Who fans already know, Dr. Robert Smith, also a doctor, has a question mark legally at the end of his last name, <laughs> and also a zombie expert out in the world, thanks to a paper he wrote that mathematically modeled a fictional zombie apocalypse, so we had that in common. Wow. <laughs> and um, we, we knew each other from Doctor Who conventions because he'd done a lot of stuff. He'd, he'd written for some other books. And, uh, and obviously he and his uh, writing partner, Graham Burke, have gone on to write quite a series of books that are still going on now, uh, other Doctor Who-related books. And he had this crazy idea for a book that he couldn't get any other publisher interested in. And I guess he saw me and thought, here's something you <laughs> won't know how horrible this could possibly be. Let's try this. And he pitched me on the idea of, a book that took the entire classic Doctor Who series, broke them down into stories, you know, so by classic you know, Doctor Who fan standards, you know, you do a, an essay on Horror Fang Rock or you do an essay on the war games. It didn't matter how many episodes, the yeah, point is yeah. what the story is. And, uh, and give a different writer every one of those classic stories. And what it broke down to was 160 stories, 160 different writers and the the marching orders he gave them was this series has been around for so long and has inspired possibly more publishing than any other series on earth except maybe Star Trek and I think Doctor Who has really surpassed Star Trek. Um, but say something new and different yeah, yeah. and unique and if necessary blow out format do something weird if you want <clears throat> if you think your best case for saying something insightful about a story is to write it as if it's internal memos from the BBC, do it. If you're writing a play, do that. If it's a sequel to that story, write a piece of fiction. If you just want to do a nonfiction critical essay, do that. It was an insane idea, and I loved it, because mainly I thought to myself, ATB is going to be the books that I would have wanted to buy 
if I wasn't publishing them and I found them in a store, would these be the books that I'd walk out with? Yes. And I thought, that's what I want to publish. Mm. And I thought, that's the book I would be thrilled to find on a shelf. Well, and So we did it. It's called Outside In. The first one was called Outside In. Yeah. And uh, and was an extraordinary idea. And that became the first ATB book, technically. Well, and obviously I have just a little bit of interest in this, given that I'm in. (laughs) You might. You might. Yeah. (laughs) And the second one as well. Actually, one of the things Robert Smith did with that first book, and this is what I think makes it even more fascinating and even more more of... uh, I can't think of the expression I want, but it makes it even more um, important, perhaps, in a way, mm-hmm. is that it wasn't all brand new essays. He also sourced stuff. So the first oh, that's book, right. Yeah, the first book sources yeah. a lot of stuff and well, has new essays interspersed. And then the second I, book... I might, be, I might be changing the story a little bit, so Robert is the one that would be able to clarify this a lot more. But as I remember it, it was around the time he was also working on another series of books that also sourced previously published or online material. And he had come up with the outside in idea, I think at least partly because he'd come across so many cool essays and, and takes on these shows and thought what an amazing collection it would be. But what happened was it wound up being much more complicated than we yeah. originally thought, which is typical with these projects. Because yeah. <laughs> what it wound up being was he got about 80 or so that were previously published. And when we say previously previously published, for the most part, most people who are picking up the book may never have encountered them before because they were run on like online you know, archives yeah, or yeah. somebody's blog. Well, this uh, is, and, uh, just to interrupt slightly again, no, this is ahead. the thing about it is, you think you publish something on the internet, it's there forever. It is, yes. but only if people can find it, right? That's right, yeah. And and there's so much stuff that, of course, as sites die or as uh, host, hosts and providers die, yeah. things have vanished off the internet and in the relatively short space of time that we've all been online. There's a lot of stuff I remember being online that's gone and you can't get it back. And, and it, there's no place to find it, not archive.org, not anywhere. Um so we did that, and then he realized that he needed to commission new material. So yeah. it wound up being about half stuff that already existed and stuff that he had to commission. And then once we moved forward with it, though, we left behind the, um, yeah, the idea yeah. of sourcing stuff, and it just became, for each volume, um, a wholly original material that he was uh, commissioning from people. And, and the series developed a personality of you know we wanted to break format we want you to turn the page of every book and not be sure what you're going to see maybe an article will be entirely done as if it's a stack of trading cards that you're looking through or maybe it'll be a menu from a restaurant or maybe you'll hit an essay that looks pretty straightforward and but it's a moving piece about somebody's childhood it's a it's an eclectic impossible to define uh thing and so far we did um we did the two books Outside In was on classic Doctor Who. Outside In 2 was on modern Doctor Who, as we decided to call it, from yeah. Rose up until the story last Christmas. And right, then yeah. we decided to jump universes. <laughs> and uh, we did classic Kirk-era Star Trek in the next one. And that's when I also came up with the crazy idea of, well, if Outside In is the book series... 
what if we start titling it with subtitles instead of numbers and do it like as if to say, the title is as if to say the outside in series is doing something like the yeah. title is outside in is doing something of course what that also means is this nobody has any clue what the book is as i've discovered but i'm still happy with it so i'm letting it go well, i've noticed it's <laughs> well, i was gonna say some people read the title and go i don't i can't figure out what this title means because it makes no grammatical sense like the third book is called outside in boldly goes yeah, yeah. because the point is the book outside in is boldly going into Star Trek, but people read outside in boldly goes and say, "What the hell are these people talking about?" Well, and I've like, done oh, well. something very similar over here in the UK. I, I yeah. have a series of books of my own that has uh-huh. kind of got a title like Outside In now, which was You and Who. You which and is, Who, of course. Which is fairly similar, but I think uh, I wrote a piece for you one did. Of the you you and did indeed. Did. Yep. But yeah. it's distinct enough that it's a, it's an entirely different thing, but has there are certain similarities. But yeah, we ha- when I finally get around to it, we're going to have a volume about the movies, and it's uh-huh. called "You Goes to the Pictures." <laughs> That's right, because it's the you book, and exactly, I totally understand yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, That's right. So we so we did the classic one, and um, in the midst of this uh, big mysterious book. We're, we're also doing the fourth outside in within a month of this one coming out. We have coming out at the end of September, the fourth outside in, which jumps from classic Star Trek to Star Trek, the next generation. And it's outside in makes it so. Yes. So that's already, that's already on its way. And it may be the craziest and the most interesting one we've done. And I just finished layout on that. And, and I was just amazed. I, I actually, got teary-eyed at like three different pieces it had some of the most emotionally moving things i've seen people write very personal stuff and then at the same time there's really crazy funny things in it and that's what i love about them they're just it's such a weird mix and you can dive in and you never know what you're gonna get and we already know where the series is going by the way i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you you're the first person i'm telling anything about that that we do know where it's going but we're not saying yet oh, where that is. Oh, I thought you were going to reveal no. it now. No, I'm just telling you that we do know. Okay. There, yeah, no. It, so there is definitely a future, because you were saying, like, maybe Outside would be a half dozen books. There is a future for Outside In, but, um, well, this but is we'll what be I've, revealing it soon. Yeah, this is what I found with you and who, and presumably you're having the same thing with Outside In. Once it gets started and people start becoming regular customers for it, as well as regular mm-hmm. authors for it, you realize it has a life that can just keep going for years and years and years. Absolutely. Because it's a basic framework that yeah. is it's very attractive to people that yeah. want to write because it gives you an option to try something different. Yeah. And and also we're constantly looking for new voices, you know, and, and this is really Robert's show is the whole outside in thing. And yeah. he's always looking for new voices. And then on top of it, for a reader experience, I think, uh, like I said, I would want these books. I just I just love the, the eclectic nature of it. And, yes. Um, so absolutely. There's there's certainly uh, no end in sight if you can keep finding things to apply that basic approach. And I will say I'll throw in that. One of the other nice things about the Outside In series, and we started it partly by necessity that way, but it's a component of the entire series, is that we donate a percentage of the proceeds to a charity that Robert selected, which is an AIDS charity called Avert that he supports. 
And uh, so everybody that's participating in these books is also doing it on the understanding that they're basically donating their expertise and their time and their writing to something where at least, you know, part of it is going to a cause as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah. Right. Let's talk about the thing we came here to talk about, shall we? All right, then. <laughs> okay. Right. I th- in, To introduce this, I'm going to ask you, how and when did you get into Doctor Who yourself? Okay. Um, can we start with that, then? Yeah, we'll start with that, okay. and then we'll open okay. it out and talk about the book. Well, thanks because I to... Because I think your experience of getting into Doctor Who is what informs why the book exists, if you know what I mean. I, well, certainly from my perspective, yeah, absolutely. And and um, it's only in recent years that I could even tell you some of the details, and that's thanks to one of the people on the team working on this book. Right. Because uh, their website, broadcast.org, I want to say .org, oh, I hope I didn't get that wrong, <laughs> um, which is spelled broad DW cast, uh, yeah. is uh, their project where they've put together as much data as they possibly can on air dates and, and stations and locations related to the airing of Doctor Who. And, um, and yes, it's broadcast.org. And anyway, uh, using that, I was able to pinpoint when. So I can tell you definitively that I discovered Doctor Who pretty late compared to some of my contemporaries, but it was August of 1987. And prior to that, I had seen it a few times, but I didn't know that that's what it was. I, I had encountered some Tom Baker on Maryland Public Television a couple times, but it didn't hook me for whatever reason. I do remember that I saw all of the Leisure Hive all at once, and I thought that I was watching a movie, because <laughs> at that time I didn't really know what it was, but I just thought, oh, this is interesting, and it didn't bring me back the following week, and to be honest, I'm not sure I knew that it was something that was going to be on again. Yeah, it's also yeah. a huge thunderstorm brewing outside, so uh, if you hear anything, that's that, so um, <laughs> and hopefully I'll stay online. So anyway... Uh, I didn't stick with it, and then in August of 1987, I put on Maryland Public Television on a Saturday night, and it was Attack of the Cybermen. Wow. And yes, that's right, folks. <laughs> I started watching Doctor Who intently and stayed with it because of Attack of the Cybermen. <laughs> I can't defend that right now. I can't really explain why that is. Actually, I can't. One of the reasons I, that now I tried to look back and say, why did that get me? Because and, it's uh, got a history already built into it that you want to exactly. discover. Yeah? Yeah. Yes, exactly. That entire story was telling me there's a world, there's a universe beyond this story that you don't know about yet, but it's there. Mm. And, I, and I was already, as a Star Trek and a Star Wars fan, I loved these other universes. And it was so enticing to think, wow, there's got to be a lot of stuff to figure out about what this is. So, yeah, and then I looked up in the TV guide that Doctor Who was on again the next day on Sunday on the Washington, D.C. public television station, because where I am in Maryland, you get both. Ah, And I thought, oh, cool, I can watch it again tomorrow. But when I put on the Sunday one, I got Ambassadors of Death. (laughs) And, and of course, it was black and white, too, remember. So, So I was stunned, and I realized, oh, my God, this show is so long, I'm seeing two different eras at the same time. So I started watching both the Colin Baker stuff and the John Pertwee stuff, Saturdays and Sundays, and started knitting in 
all the gaps with Target novels and the magazine and everything else I could get my hands on. So that's how I started. I've got to tell you, my jaw just went slack through that bit. <laughs> really? <laughs> Colin Baker and John Pertwee at the same time was your that's introduction right. to Doctor Who. That's just that's insane. Right. Yep. I mean, I, I, you hear all these stories about people who say, oh, yeah, when I was growing up, they just showed Doctor Who on a loop. So you'd watch the whole of from X to Y and then yeah. you'd go back to oh, X yeah. and start again. But I can't imagine watching two Doctors as different as those two at the same time. Yeah, I thought it was amazing because the Colin Baker stuff very much felt like a show of the time that I was watching in the 80s. Yes. But Pertwee felt like I was watching like vintage horror and science fiction. There's the kind of stuff I grew up loving. So it's like, wow, the, the tone's different. The style is different. And of course, starting with season seven, you know, you get that very mm. sort of hammer-esque, you know, and the, and the fact that it was in black and white instead of color really struck me. And um, so, yeah, I was, I was, I was completely hooked. And, and my local comic shop did have like an entire wall of target books. So, I was like, I'm going to start picking some stuff. And I knew eventually, you know, that these are stories I hadn't seen yet. And sometimes I read them beforehand because I wanted to know, yeah, you know, what was going to happen. Um, well, but yeah, so that's how I got started. And the reason I brought that up, and you've illustrated it perfectly there, is one of the reasons, not necessarily the main reason, but I think this feeds into the main reason, perhaps, but one of the reasons this book exists is because Doctor Who was broadcast, I don't know if haphazardly is, is the right word, but in in Britain, Doctor Who was broadcast from start to finish. The only repeats you ever really got were repeats of the very latest stuff. So, mm. you, so you never got to chop and change around in Doctor Who. It was just a story that started and carried on to the end. In America and probably Australia and New Zealand and other places as well, but abroad from Britain, you're watching Doctor Who in these weird cycles. Yes. And there's something, it strikes me, there's something a little bit magical about that. And, and, and you're also seeing, at least where I was, and in many other places in the country as well, you were seeing them in what we all came to call movie format. You were yes, seeing course, them where yeah. if it was a 4, 6, or even 10, 12-parter, um, well, War Games, if I remember right, at least I, I, I know some places they did it differently, but I think in Maryland War Games, they did it in two parts. They right. did two six-part chunks. Um, but yeah, you'd see it you know, all at once. So if I'm watching Saturday night, and most of the time during the time that I ran it, uh, that I was watching it, um, it would start like around 11.30. So if that was a six-parter, wow. I'm just sitting there until the wee hours. I'm going to watch the whole thing. And and uh, well, with commercials as well, you're talking three o'clock. No, not commercials, not commercials, because public television oh, course, did yes. not run commercials. Yeah. Right. Now, now the only difference would be, as as also comes up in this book quite a bit, if it was during a pledge drive period, where a couple times a year, yes, they interrupt the shows and they come on, and there's like you know you're seeing a live video feed from your local PBS station, and there's a phone bank, and there are all these people sitting there taking phone calls, and all the local PBS personalities, if we could call them that, um, are on the air saying, you know, you know, we, we try not to come to you very often, but we come to you a couple times a year, and it's partially publicly funded, and they have to, like, you know, as yeah, opposed yeah. to, say, like, the license fee, this is something where they have to ask, please pledge, 
And during Doctor Who, they were always interrupting with the pledge drive because they knew Doctor Who fans were passionate and yes. dedicated and would spend at the $75 pledge level for a videotape that's really only worth 30 or $40 and, <laughs> and do that. So, well, speaking uh, of so video those tapes, nights were huge. The, yeah, There is actually a, a you, well, it was a VHS cassette. It's now available on DVD over here in the UK of some of those pledge breaks, the ones that Patrick Troutman did. Oh, they're, they're insane. Yeah. And the weird thing is, I I remember watching it at the time, and I always tell this story, and now I've seen, I think some people put it so much on YouTube now. Yeah, yeah. You can find so much stuff on YouTube that used to be, oh, I'll, I'll never see it again, and somebody taped it, and now it's on YouTube. Um, which is sort of the reverse of what we were talking about earlier, about how there's stuff you can't find online anymore. Yeah. But now there's a lot of older memories that are there. And I remember there was a convention, as it turns out, happening in the Baltimore area, but I wasn't going to conventions back then. I wasn't really seeking those things out for some reason. And Tom Baker and Sophie Aldred were in Baltimore, in my hometown, doing a convention. So they did a pledge drive appearance on Maryland Public Television. And being Tom Baker, you never knew what you were going to get yeah. with him. So there was one point where they're sitting there talking and Sophie's doing whatever nice thing she's doing about, yeah, it's nice to be over here in the States and we hope you'll call. And then they said, Tom, would, would you like to say a few words to the people at home? And he took the microphone and launched into this whole thing about how if you're watching Doctor Who right now at home in Maryland and you're not, and you're not giving them any money for a pledge, you're a parasite. <laughs> <laughs> and... As it happens, I didn't pledge anything to the station at that particular point, but I was watching it at home, and I turned to everyone at home, and I was like, hey, look, we're parasites. The doctor is calling us parasites. Isn't that awesome? And uh, so the, those kind of things, it was, just, it was also part of the joy of being a fan because that added a whole new layer of entertainment. You didn't know what they were going to do. You didn't know who they were going to get in. You know, then yeah, the days yeah. of John Nathan Turner, all these people were coming over and doing all these appearances. And um, and that's a major part of the American experience of watching Doctor Who on PBS. Well, and another thing about as well, it strikes me that about being a Doctor Who fan in America is that. And obviously over in Britain, as fans, you don't have any control as viewers. You don't have any control over what goes on on the television. But as you're sort of alluding to there, if you're becoming a fan of Doctor Who in America, you're sort of so isolated from the source that you're getting it again in sort of fits and starts and bits and pieces. You know, like as you say about these people coming over from for the sort of pledge breaks, you don't know who you're going to get. There's to me again, I'll use the same word. There's a kind of a magic about that in that. Yeah, there's a sort of a mystery about it. Do you know what I mean? Well, and I, I think that what you're what you're uh, what you're pointing to a couple times now already is part of. I think we didn't even, we never even said the title of the book yet, have no. we? No. Uh, <laughs> um, we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you're 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 hitting on one of the main things that I think is not to sound too crass about it, but definitely one of the main selling points of this book. Yes. Is not even so much how what it can provide to an American reading audience, but what I think it can clarify for fans in the UK yeah. who have never quite, and have said so and have asked, have never quite understood, like you just put it, and I think it's a beautiful way of putting it, what is the magic of 
the uniquely American experience of getting involved in Doctor Who. And there's so many permutations to that that I don't think has ever really been clear that I think in some ways this does a better service for explaining that to people that grew up with it in the UK and just it was a part of their childhood landscape than it even does for fans in America. Well, I know, and okay, we'll talk about the book, but I'm going to describe a little bit of it now before we do. <laughs> in Britain, you'll get guides to the TV program, or you'll get a guide yep. to the merchandise, or you'll maybe get a section in a book that deals with the way the press dealt with a certain era of the program, or you'll get a guide to the big Finnish audios, mm -hmm. or this, that, the other. You'll get guides to various things. And in Britain, those guides are absolutely nailed on to when those things happened in Britain, when those broad television programs were broadcast on the television, and it is very, very linear, and it's very, very delineated. The book we're about to talk about, you tell me what the name of it is. Okay. So at long last, uh, <laughs> we can we can reveal that the book is Red, White and Who, The Story of Doctor Who in America. And uh, to go back to what you were saying in the beginning, I am not, in fact, one of the authors. Uh, I am I'm just the publisher. Right. Uh, enough. <laughs> early on in the project, I was going to be and at the time we started it. Oh, it's gone through so many um, versions over the years because we we first announced it formally around 2011 because so much of it required a the degree of research and yes. involvement from people out there that so we needed to get it public so that we could you know enlist the aid of all these people but early on we were calling the people working on it editors and I was going to be one Sean Lyon from the Gallifrey One convention and, yes uh, of course going to be one but and this is why I'm confused because I remember the announcement. I was yeah, there yeah, for and, the it, and it's yeah. changed, and and the the team really grew, uh, and they really became the authors of the piece. Yeah. And and I step back and realize it's going to be best for me to focus on publishing and also doing the layout and design, and like the the management of the project once it was ready for publishing. But in all these years, uh, it pretty much became. Uh, the purview of this team, and it's headed up by Stephen Warren Hill, who of course, is yes. the primary author, and uh, he's been saying also sort of the project manager for most of the years of them doing it. And uh, the other authors are Jennifer Adams Kelly, Nicholas Seidler, Rob Warnock, Jan Fennick, and John Lavalle, and that's uh, six people. And it may sound like a lot of people, but it's over 700 pages, this book, and it's, yeah. um, over 600 images. It's in full color, which was an early decision that I realized had to be made, even for a small press. I thought there's no way I can feel comfortable publishing this book in black and white. It would be so disappointing mm. to take all this history and this work and just say, yeah, but you can't see the color of this beautiful brochure, this amazing photo. So we had to do that. Um and, uh, and just to finish the credits, we have some infographics provided by Paul Smith at Wonderful Books. Oh, yes. Uh, who did a few uh, infographics for us and a few key places in the book. And uh, it's a wraparound illustrated cover that was done by an artist named Danny Jones, who does just some beautiful pop culture theme work in a variety of different universes, including her own. But she's a big Doctor Who fan as well. And it was a nice little touch, too, because I really had always from the very beginning wanted to make sure that the cover was also drawn by an American Doctor Who fan. Like, that would right. be a nice added thing. Uh, but that's the whole team. And and uh, I've 
been quite happy to be the one that just designed the book and put it together and published it. But um, it's been an amazing process seeing this coming together, particularly in the last year or so alone. Right. Who sat down and said, this book needs to happen? Where did the book actually come from? Well, we discovered, uh, the way Steve tells it, it goes back to around 2008 or 2009, I did find, by the way, I, I talked a little bit about my version of the story in the afterword for the book, but after we were done and it went to press, I discovered I was wrong. So <laughs> I, The weird part is I knew I had come up with the title years ago, and it's not like brain surgery. I know some people have come up with variations of it, but uh, it turns out I'd actually used the title Red, White, and Who for an essay I did about Doctor Who in comics, in American comics, back around 2001 or two. But then around 2008, 2009, I was thinking, oh, it'd be nice if one day I could publish my own stuff. And the only book I really had in my mind, the only thing I thought was important to me, at least initially, was it felt like there was a book missing from the huge library of Doctor Who nonfiction references. Yeah. And that was a book that specifically looked at the American relationship with the show and how that really goes both ways and, and how both inform the other and it seems to have only gotten more dramatic as we've been working on it yeah um but then i found out and going to conventions all those years and working on the other stuff i did that brought me to doctor who conventions every year that people at both chicago and gallifrey in la where i was going also had independently come up with the similar idea and i can't remember but i think it was one dinner we had at one of those conventions where a bunch of us including steve and jennifer and sean we're all sitting there and going, you know, I think the only reason this book doesn't exist yet is because we're going to have to make the book. Yeah. And and so that's where it started. And then we realized, all right, we're going to form this team. I'm going to publish it. It'll be the first ATB book, although that's not how it turned out. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then as the years went by, the team has evolved into the group that has now seen it through to completion. And the book is become huger and more and more comprehensive presumably yes uh, presumably a large part of that is uncovering more and more information and images and facts and things like that absolutely uh steve's already said in a few other interviews that one of his um one of his rules that he imparted to everyone on the team was that they're not leaving anything out if they find anything yeah. that fit the, the the remit of the book that they were going to put it in. And the book is all-inclusive. Like some people might think, oh, so this is just a book about like American conventions or the pledge drives. No, it's about the conventions and the pledge drives and the broadcasting history and the impact that Doctor Who had on American pop culture and the stuff that happened when Doctor Who started shooting here. And, and it keeps going. And, yeah, and yeah. we have... Uh, appendices that cover a lot of the details we have it's mostly chronological although at a certain point in the book where it seems to make sense the chronology kind of splits and yes. some of the chapters start to deal with different aspects like the merchandising the fan uh, productions the cosplay yeah um well, and it really say... is all inclusive it's it's amazing i don't know how they accomplished the level of research they yeah. did it's it's amazing work well this is what i was alluding to a few minutes ago is that if you start on those first chapters and it really is an unfolding story and it is 
and I suppose for some people the level of detail is may, might be off-putting, but I think actually we're talking about Doctor Who fans. I think Doctor Who fans, the level of uh, detail is exactly what they'll be looking for. And I, mean, I, I would, I yeah. would argue too, by the way, that that you're right in a certain sense. That I know there's certainly going to be people, for instance, who will say, "Well, I don't want to read an entire chapter about you know how PBS started or." you know, what the business dealings were that got Time Life to distribute. It's like, well, yes, that's true. You might find that dry, but if you do find those 20 or 30 pages dry, there's 670 yeah, others yeah. you could take a look at. So there, there are definitely areas where, even in this case, this is a book where you might find that there are only certain areas that you get personally very passionate about. Yeah. I think that represents what I remember or what I'm fascinated by, but it's there. And another thing about it is, and I'm talking about somebody who's in the UK, this is something mm -hmm. I would want to own anyway, even if just for the press cuttings and the photographs yes. and things like that. You know, the, the text almost, from that sort of perspective, is the icing on the top. Yes, there's a, the, the imagery is, a, is incredible. I mean, obviously, I'm going to say that, but I, <laughs> I, I hope people understand that I can only say that that I'm trying to be as sincere as possible in that I'm fascinated by it just as a fellow Doctor Who fan having a hard time finishing the layout because I was spending so much time reading it and looking at everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it was eye-opening some of the stuff they discovered. And like you said, discovering information. There are things in this book that have never been revealed before. Um there were definitely a few things, a few mysteries, long-standing mysteries in fandom that Steve and the team wanted to resolve, but in that process did uncover some other things. So, for instance, we do have a list of things where it's like, if you ever wondered, where did the term Whovian first come from? Why does Gary Russell in his foreword still blame America for that word? And, uh, you know, why did it happen? The full story of the origin of that word is in the book. Um, yeah. there's fascinating stuff in here that has never been revealed before about Gail Bennett and her role in, uh, the, uh, portrait that appears of John Pertwee in Time Lash. Um, and I won't um. say anything more about that, but there's <laughs> stuff in the book about that that's going to be fascinating to people that's never been talked about before. And there's a lot of that throughout where there are things that they uncovered that they're like, wow, no one's ever really said this before or revealed this and in the midst of this like you said very detailed sort of chronological narrative you you discover a lot of things that, that i'm hoping if if nothing else i think this book will become a resource for future yeah. writing about doctor who people will say well this is where this began as we found out that because of all the work this team did well, and, and Yet another thing is, because it's chronological, or the, you know, the first sort of half of the book or whatever it is, is chronological, mm -hmm. as you read through the text, there might be one paragraph where you think, well, that doesn't particularly interest me, particularly as I'm from the UK or whatever. But, you know, half a page later on, there'll be something else that's absolutely fascinating. And mm -hmm. I suppose it will vary from one person to the next, what they think is the fascinating thing and what's the less interesting thing. But it really is an absolute smorgasbord of information and an unfolding story that kind of although it's an unfolding story of a television program it feels like a really personal thing 
Well, I think, first of all, thank you for saying that. And, and again, I think that's a testament to the team and the work they did. Because the other thing, too, is at six people working in varying degrees on different aspects of the book and working together on a lot of sections of the book. And yet I do feel that ultimately the book has, first of all, a very singular voice, which is not easy to pull off. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also I think what comes – and also there were there were a lot of – conversations throughout the years of wanting to be as objective as possible in the book that the book should not you know yeah editorialize too much in certain areas that is not to say that there aren't things in the book where like someone takes a stand about a particular thing or that there are some things that are subjective and there's one chapter that should be interesting to a lot of people where they really decide to get pretty subjective where they decide to take a chapter toward the end of the book and look at, well, what is the difference between U.S. and U.K. fandom? Where did some of the misconceptions come up? And how do, how do everybody feel about each other? And that, by its very nature, has to become a bit more subjective. But um, for the most part, they've maintained a tone that's more journalistic, that's yeah, more yeah. Um, you know, reporting than it is about passing judgment on anything. And and yet, I agree with you, I think that so much comes through that it's a personal passion for all these things. And I should say, early on, we were, we were constantly pushing this idea that this was going to like tell the story of American fans, but I think it led to a lot of misconception in the early days about the book that still kind of lingers, where people thought it was going to be like another essay collection, where like a bunch of fans would tell their stories. That's not what the book is. But it does incorporate a lot of maybe not specific, but general details about a lot of people's experiences across the country. So if you if you as a say out there as a United States fan grew up in Michigan or Baltimore or Chicago or you know Dallas or Los Angeles, you will see yourself represented somewhere somehow in this book because you'll see that reflected. And further than that, the thing I find with things like this um is that if you're a say australian fan you can mm -hmm. pick this book up and although the press pieces will be slightly different the dates will be slightly different the order in which things happened will be slightly different you'll still recognize the experience of it and there's still oh, a yeah. and there'll still be a fascination with the detail of it and i think that's true for uk fans as well because this is you know, one of the things that this is going to sound like probably a really bizarre illusion, but one of the things obviously <laughs> that fans like is the sort of the sort of super text, the the peripheral stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is this is <laughs> in terms of UK fans, this could read almost like a fictional account of the development <laughs> of Doctor Who. Do you know what I mean? No, I know what you mean. And and um I mean, I, I, I would hope that one of the things that people get out of the book, too, is that it's a really fun story, mm. that, that, that there is a story throughout this whole thing. It's a story that involves a lot of people over decades, but it, it is still a narrative. It is still a story. And it's a story about a show that regardless of whether in the UK or the US, we all grew up loving. Yeah. And and that's the commonality, like you were just saying, that's the the super text, that's the, the commonality that ties it all together is there are these touchstones throughout the book. It's like, oh, the TV movie comes up, the nine, you know, the mm, McGann movie mm. comes up. It's like, oh, well, I remember that. But now you're, you're seeing through the lens of what that experience was like at that point for American fandom and, and how, 
you know, all the aspects of that came into play. And I do feel that as the book gets closer and closer to the present, and this book really does, although there was an intent to sort of have a cutoff point so that they could finish their work and really, and, yeah. and there's so much to do afterward, we really did sort of keep working throughout the design process to the extent that there are even things in the book that reflect details right up until around June of 2017 where we were wrapping it up. So, yeah. you know, we did that. But I do feel that as the book gets closer to the present, a lot of those uh, commonalities converge because we're starting to get, for in, for one thing, we're getting closer and closer to us both seeing the show at the same time yes. on the same day, you know, that sort of thing. So I think people will feel, particularly in the UK, they might feel that things keep getting more familiar, more consistent with their own memories or their experience of the show if, as they get yeah. closer. And of course, as the internet has grown, Absolutely. our experience of how other people experience it has grown right. alongside one another. And another thing right. that you've just said that I was about to bring up as well is reading something like this is a great way of getting a new perspective on something you thought you knew, such as, mm -hmm. for instance, the TV movie, but, you know, also including, say, for example, Megalos or Planet of the Daleks, mm -hmm. or just the whole of Doctor Who. This is for, pe for people in my country, this is a brand new perspective on the whole of Doctor Who. Absolutely. And, and that's, again, that's something that I hope people find is really appealing is the idea that, it's it's seeing the thing they love through fresh eyes yeah and, and realizing that it, like we were talking earlier about the mystery for so many people in the uk is well, why do americans like the show so much isn't it so different from other things and, and yes that's in a very simplistic way that's part of it but it's more complicated and i think the book goes a long way hopefully to explaining why so many americans embraced it and uh and that is a fresh perspective it is I got to say when I obviously I remember the announcement that this was going to happen what was it 2011 you said it happened yeah I think yeah, that's, yeah. I think I said yeah and so I've kind of sort of uh, had a sort of half a vague eye on this all the time mm -hmm. but but when it came close to publication I just well I mean other people's opinion may vary but I think this is an important book well, I I certainly do agree. Obviously, I would. <laughs> yeah. But again, I I hope that people understand that when I say that, I I really feel like I say that more as a Doctor Who fan. It's like that nothing like this has been done. Yeah. These stories have never been put together and told in context in a way that puts it all into this perspective, as we've been saying. And uh, and yeah, I feel like you know. It, there are a lot of other reference works that will always be fun, but you know you can have the four thousandth episode guide or you know the book another book about monsters, and that doesn't mean those aren't great. But I really do feel this adds something yes. important to the library yes. that I think has been missing for a long time, and I'm I'm just uh, I'm just very proud to be the one that's helping to make it actually real, you know. And uh, it's the team that worked on it that really shaped a, an incredible story out of all that research well and you said it yourself earlier and this is my philosophy and all those well as you mentioned earlier that article i did a few years ago about small press doctor who publishing mm -hmm. i think this is true for everybody who was involved in that you publish books that are the books that you would want to read because nobody else has published them yet mm -hmm. and that's what this book is basically yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's the one that I knew was like there was that empty spot on the shelf along with all those other books about the history of Doctor Who. And it's like, well, i got to fill that spot on the shelf. And it came down to us doing it. So for, well, <laughs> we, I might be in the UK, but I'm sure we've got plenty of listeners in America and elsewhere. Yeah, better kind of give people a rough guide to how to get hold of it. Especially as I think this podcast will go out like maybe a day or two after it's actually out. Well, I will say, um, and I guess because I... I I kind of stepped back from giving you an exclusive before, but I, I can yeah. give you something because I know we're recording a little bit in advance yeah. anyway. Um, but uh, we haven't said this anywhere publicly yet at the time that we're recording this. Ooh. But uh, by the time people hear it, it may already be a, uh, a done thing. But anyway, uh, some time ago we were, we were very thrilled to be asked. And Doctor Who magazine is going to be running an exclusive excerpt from the book in the very issue that will be the first issue uh, heralding the arrival of Jodie Whittaker Ooh. as the next Doctor. So in Doctor Who magazine 516... This is a nice uh, bit of timing for you, isn't it? Yeah, there is, there's going to be an exclusive excerpt, and it is the material from the book that details the story of the Doctor Who USA tour, the bus that traveled around the United right, States yeah. with a variety of guests. And we've provided Doctor Who magazine with the text and some exclusive images to go with it. And if all goes well, um, there will also be an interview with Stephen Warren Hill running, possibly in the next issue, but I'm not 100% certain about that. But I do know that we're going to be, the excerpt will be in 516. Yeah. So we're really thrilled about that. And um, it's just a joy to know that... uh, People picking up Doctor Who magazine get a little glimpse of this, but um, but after that, so Red, White, and Who will uh, will be coming out shortly. We're still, as we're recording this, we're still in the pre-order period, but that'll probably be over by the time anybody hears this. Yeah. But um, it is available right now only through our website at atbpublishing.com, and uh, and I will say it's it's forty nine ninety five. It's a soft cover book. It's 704 pages. It's in full color. And yes, for anyone who's listening who is not a uh, uh, U.S. customer, is U.K. or international, it can be very pricey with shipping, especially since we don't have any uh, major distributor running this. And uh, we have been fielding some uh, discussion about that on various forums. And all I can say at this point is I'm sure you well know about small press and independent yeah, yeah, yeah. press. It's a difficult thing, and all we can say is that we're constantly trying to find the best possible ways to make that cost as low as it can be. Well, but it is pricey. You get and what if you someone pay for. Wants it, yeah, well, that's that's true. I mean, ultimately, the book is as low as it could possibly be for cover price for the amount of work yeah. and and um, and design that's put into it. But um, uh, I just hope that international readers and fans from around the world who are interested in this will see that uh it's certainly not a case of us lining our pockets because that money just (laughs) goes to shipping the book it's more a case of it's just the the situation that it is and we hope that fans will still be very interested in seeing what we have to offer in this because as we were just saying i think it's it's an astounding story that's finally put into one place for you to experience well one thing i've found about doctor who fans is you know, if something's worth buying, they will pay what it costs to buy it. Well, we, yeah. 
Well, I'll, I'll go so far that this was a joke that came up, and and uh, somebody was pointing out, uh, you know, that it was pretty pricey to get it shipped, and you know, whether it's Australia, UK. I know that somebody on one of the the message boards came along and said, "Well, United States fans spent decades having to ship stuff <laughs> over from the UK that they couldn't get any other way, so here's part of that experience that you're getting." <laughs> with the book and now i will not go so far as to officially endorse that opinion but i just share it with you as yeah, yeah no that is that is a nice little well not a nice little irony but yes i take your point <laughs> yep um look arnold before you go um let people know again remind them what your podcast is and where they can find you on places like twitter so that anybody who's been listening to this who wants to dig you out can uh, find you and find out maybe more about the book or more about the podcast or whatever. Absolutely. The podcast is Doctor of the Dead. It is available on iTunes and a um, variety of other places, including if I think if you still go to doctorofthedead.com, you will also get to our website where we not only have that podcast, but a lot of the other stuff we've done. We're currently in the middle of a bit of a hiatus, like I was saying, because of this very book, Red, White, yeah, and yeah. New, and, and other things that Scott's involved in. Um, in the gaming world, he does a lot of writing and editing uh, in the role-playing game. In fact, as we're recording this, he is currently at Gen Con, one of the biggest gaming conventions in the world. Um, and you can find me on Twitter, at Doctor of the Dead. And uh, I will happily take questions about Red, White, and Who or point you in the right direction. Brilliant. Well, we didn't miss our third party after all, did we? Well, we missed him, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we... I, things went along just fine. I'm sorry we didn't have a chance to incorporate Graham, but I'm sure you'll also have a wonderful conversation with him when the time comes. But it was a yeah. pleasure chatting with you today. Oh, it's been it's been great actually. This is, like I said, I think this is an important book. But I had just as much fun talking about zombies. Um, I'm I'm always happy to talk about zombies. <laughs> That's fine. Right next week we'll get back to the normal Blue Box podcast lineup. I suspect, and we might be talking about monsters. And then mm. the week after that, hopefully, we'll have Graham to talk about his book. But until then, I was JR. And I was Arnold. And we'll speak again soon. Mm -hmm.